if you feel like you are just constantly on the way down and you can't catch a break, I guarantee what you will see on LinkedIn was founder with successful exit enterprise leader. And on the inside, everybody around him stressed out, nervous, and he feels like he is constantly screwing up and in shambles. And I hope people, and this is part of what you talk about a lot that I deeply appreciate, I hope people don't see these things as a binary set of, I have my personal journey, my emotional, Mm. spiritual health. There's that side of me that I take care of outside of work. I put that on hold, I step into work and I go do the performance thing. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, bringing forth the new wave of rising leadership and helping leaders find purpose, connection, and results. This is your host, founder of Alluviance, Alex Kremer. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Rising Leader Podcast. If this is your first time to the show, we very much welcome you with open arms. I want to just give you a big all virtual hug here. And I am very excited for today's conversation. I got my good friend, Nate Nezrala. Nate, what's up, man? It's good to see you. It's Likewise, I've been looking forward to this one. Highlight of my week. So thanks for having me on, man. Highlight of your week. That makes me feel very good. Nate, first off, I just want to say it's an honor to have you on the show. I've been following your content for a good amount of time now. I told one of my buddies, hey, I'm having Nate on the show. They're like, you're having Nate? That's a good guest right there. I was like, damn straight. It's a good ass guest right there. So I'm excited. And just even in our previous conversation too, I think we're on to some good stuff here of, of what to kind of share, especially with just the unique times that we are at within the sales world and all that sort of good stuff. So Nate, I'm going to intro you first. I'm going to give a little like background. I did some research. I did some studying, digging into your background. I'm going to share it here with the listeners, with the crew, and then I'm going to let you fill in the gaps with where I'm missing things. First off, Nate, you're a two-time founder. You're a three-time sales leader. Right now, you're the co-founder of Fluent, which is helping reps generate written business cases for essentially every champion to sell with. And I'm excited to get into that last part, sell with. You're the former co-founder of DonorPath, which was acquired by Network for Good. You're the author of three books. So first off, you're the author of Living Forward, Looking Backwards, which is helping others understand the greater purpose behind their own life stories. You authored the book, That Seems Strange. Most recently, you authored Selling With, which actually just launched November 7th, if I'm not mistaken. So just about a month or so ago. And and in it, you teach the process of creating committed champions for every deal in your pipeline while also enabling them to sell internally with a compelling written message. We got a lot of clay that we can mold here and have some fun with. I just first want to ask, what did I miss? Did I capture all that? I know you live in Denver. I know you've competed in marathons or and different things like that. So what, what else to say? I became a dad this year. That was a huge highlight. So the same month that we went full open access with our software, my daughter was born as well. And so that had been my prayer and journey for a long time is I wanted to get back to early stage business building. So I wanted to get back to being a founder, which I loved kind of the the first journey. And then my wife and I had been working on having kids for years and years. And so I wanted to be a father as well. And so it all popped off father, founder life at the exact same time this summer, which is pretty fun. I love it, man. What's it like starting a company and having a kid at the same time? I would say for my personality, so I get pretty restless, easy. 
like I like to have things to do. I just stretches my intellectual curiosity, keeps me feeling like I'm doing something meaningful with my time. And I have that in spades now. If I'm totally burnt out on my laptop and I'm like, I can't look at the screen anymore. I just go and I pick up Lucy. She is also like the most smiley kid in the world. And then, so we just sit and we look at each other and we laugh at each other for a little while. And I just have a great time with it. And I'm like, even the in-between moments where you're not really doing anything, you're not working, you're not working out. It's just like the gaps and the cracks in the day. Now I get to fill those with time with Lucy. And it's always a meaningful time spent with her. So I love it. I'm assuming it supports you, especially if you get lost in a deal or building something or have hard conversations to go back and, oh yeah, this is what life's about here. Oh yeah. And she is just, again, like the most smiley baby in the world, which just, (laughs) you can't not smile when you see her. So it puts everything back into a good balance and perspective. Hell yeah. So outside of that, you're an author, founder, sales leader, new time dad. Correct me, right? You just moved from Chicago to Denver. And was it specifically for competing in some... What was the kind of your training in? So we moved about going on eight years ago. We did not just move. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. You're absolutely right. It was the lifestyle ultimately that sent us out here. So my wife and I started dating by training for an Ironman together. I was big into racing Ironman for years. She had been doing some marathons. And I wasn't really like into dating at the time. I was doing the whole career thing and head down. But I was like, hey, pretty girl. Maybe she wants to go have fun doing the things that I like to do. She can tag along, come swim, cycle, stuff. So this was in Chicago. So we started meeting up at Ohio Street Beach to go swim in Lake Michigan before work a couple times a week, like in the mornings. And that's how we started dating. We were engaged less than a year later and then married and moved out to Denver shortly thereafter. Okay. I feel like there's a craze. So I just moved to Austin from New York and I feel like people are either moving to Austin or they're moving to Denver. It's like, which one is better for the tech scene? Which one is better for all of it right there? Yeah. We've also had a lot of Denver friends move to Austin. Cost of living is just a little bit more affordable. Austin is definitely on the rise, but Denver's unfortunate claim to fame is the most expensive non-coastal housing market. Interesting. I feel like your typology And just based on knowing you for just a little bit now, it's perfect for Austin. So I'll just make sure to keep you in loop when I'm seeing houses around the the neighborhood go for sale and all that. All right. That's a deal. And next time I'm in Austin, I'll I'll give you a shout for sure. I love it. One of the things that I really like that you share online, even in our conversations, you talk about a lot of the new ways to sell that aren't typically taught. And I think that's pretty nuanced, I would say. A lot of times, organizations, they'll teach, whether it be spin selling, Sandler, Challenger, all you name it. Hey, here's the process. Here's the formula to do it. But you talk about something just a little bit differently. And I think it's also breath of fresh air too, the way that you describe it. So I'd love for you to first just expand when you think about selling in a way that isn't typically taught. What do you mean by that? Yeah, what I mean is a strongly held belief that sales reps don't close deals, buyers do, and more specifically, champions do. Because if you look at where a decision is actually being made in the sales process, it's never like on a Zoom call or Teams and you're in the middle of a demo. It's always during an internal meeting when the seller isn't even in the room 
and it's that champion who is pitching their own team in their own words. That's where a deal is actually won or lost. And that has very fundamentally shaped the way that I see both the job description of sellers, but then also the way to build the sales process in order to increase influence in the buying process. And now you can take different frameworks like Medic and Sandler and so on. Those are, I would almost call them more tactics than frameworks because you can put those inside of the overarching framework of selling with how do you build champions, enable them to go sell. So you as the seller, you're mostly like an enablement team of one. You are identifying the inside sales rep inside because they're actually going to be on the inside when a deal is going down. And then you're enabling them to go sell for you when you can't be there in the room. How is that different than what typically has been the way that people are teaching sales? Because it's always been important to have a champion, to have a coach or to get support internally. Because at the end of the day, you can't be the rep and go in and sign their contract for them. So what is what are you talking about that's doing differently that's actually enabling and building the champion to do that? Yeah, when you look at how this plays out, most times people talk about a champion as somebody who is getting them into the room. They're setting up the meeting with the CRO, the CXO, or whomever, so that the seller can still be the one in control of the message and the deal, get me into the room so that I can sell and close. On the flip side, when you truly make the shift to selling with, what you are doing is going far deeper on creating the written content for a specific account using the language of that specific buying team so that it is acting as an internal script or a narrative that the champion is delivering on their own out of recognition that like, man, even if I do get in the room with a quote above the line buyer, the executive, there's going to be a whole series of other conversations in follow-up that I'm not a part of. And so if you look at how deeply does the rep rely on templated product decks, enablement material that sounds nothing like the buying team, case studies, versus they're going deep on actually writing something new with the champion in a collaborative way, building up a sense of ownership for that champion, you can start to see very fundamentally they view the process of building that business case with the champion as their sales process. Everything else, every behavior or practice that they're doing flows from that, beginning with the discovery questions that they're asking to get the right inputs to frame the message, all the way on down to how they multi-thread, set up portable emails for the champion to go and run with, how they frame the context at the start of a demo that they're part of. Everything else flows from and goes back to this idea of the written business case built with the champion. I was at Outreach for five years, Catalyst for for a little bit more than a year, Microsoft for five years. And one of the hardest things was always, how do you actually use the language of the way down to using product terms or product names or even a sales accepted opportunity or a sales accepted lead? like Sal versus Sal, like different things along those lines. What I also hear from you is how do you get the champion actually excited to sell the product internally? Because as the sales rep, there's always that connotation. He's always going to say they're competing against or they're better than their uh, competitors. They're always going to say we're giving it the, the best price, whatever it might be but actually figuring out how to change the one who's selling it to the champion, to the person 
inside of the company, that's got to have a way higher success rate of close. Your close rate will be approaching zero. You may have some bluebirds that fall in your lap once in a while, but without a champion, a deal just fundamentally is not going to happen. Again, there are exceptions. So I would look at, back to your kind of question, you look at the sale as happening in two levels. One, in a way, you have to close your champion. You have to get somebody who is so on board and committed with the deal that they are going to go put their internal reputation track record on the line. By the way, buying isn't like a job description. It's something that they are doing on top of their day job. So they got to commit the time and so on. So the question is like, how does that actually happen? Like, how do you build that type of working relationship with the champion? So there are a couple different things. One, you have to tie it to what's in it for the champion, them, not the company. If you're just talking about company value, then what does that mean for them? And I'll give you an example of this. A head of sales that I was recently working with, we connected on the topic of becoming a, a dad and his wife is about to give birth. And for him, he was like, I have to figure out a way to do more deal reviews async, number one, and two, to get my reps to self-serve on their own. And if I can do that, it's going to free up more of my time to A, be a good dad on the home front and B, not sacrifice my ability to say, hey, I was the one to scale a company from a million to 10 million in ARR. Like I still want that working result. So what did we do? We talked through ways in which he can accelerate some of his deal reviews by looking at the written content and then a piece of inside of our product that will point out different discovery suggestions and gaps based on the written content and what validation is or is not happening from a champion. And so we used, I used my demo to link back to what does he want to do? He wants to be an incredible father to his first son who is about to be born. And that had a whole series of kind of functional needs, right? Okay, so now we have a baseline. There's something that he's really excited about as a human and as a person outside of just, hey, the board says we got to scale the 10 million in two years. Okay, fine. Every What sales leader doesn't want to scale revenue, but there's something else behind it. You got to uncover the thing behind the thing. Number one. Number two, you have to show that you have a path that is different, more believable, and creates more buying confidence than anybody else. There are lots of ways that you could scale revenue. And so we had to line on First, did he genuinely believe that enabling champions to go sell in their deal by creating the written documentation would also then carry over into his role as a sales leader, testing for evidence, being able to see what is real in the pipeline or not? He had to believe that this was the best approach versus like you could go find more prospecting tools. You could build a wider pipeline. Why focus on close rate? Why go about upping close rate in this way that we were talking about, right? So he had to believe that in a way where he is, I'm going to go go to the mat for this, the third and last piece of this, and then I'll, I'll pause it there. He had to say, I am going to be better off running this process with you than without you. Because what a lot of sellers don't realize is a champion based on how they are influencing the internal conversation to get a deal done with your product, not based on their interaction with the seller. And so there are a lot of champions who will go completely dark on the sales rep. They'll pop back up and most people listening, you've probably had this experience. They pop up a couple months later and they're like, yo, we're ready. Send me the contract. And you're like, what? Because they fundamentally ran the sales process on their own. They thought it would be safer, less riskier internally. They can move faster if they just, they're like, hey, send me some of the decks and info and I'll take care of the rest. But what I'm saying is two things. One, that is putting all of the work back on the champion. 
in so many times, the champion will be like, okay, I see the case studies and the product decks and so on, but I now have to translate this into my language in a way that my team will resonate with us. And actually, it's been a fascinating part inside of my research talking with buyers is to look at, I will ask them to show me the difference between what they sold with internally and what the sales rep sent them. Oftentimes, they look nothing alike, which means two things. One, the sales rep didn't have a hand in shaping the actual message that the champion was using to sell. And number two, they got really lucky that the champion was willing and able to create those internal materials and narratives to help them go sell because not every champion is going to take the time to go do that. That's a really good champion. So if you both A, want influence and the ability to shape your message and B, you don't want to rely on luck that you happen to find a really good champion, that's where it comes back to the new job description for a seller around enabling the champion, buyer enable. All right. So I want to give you two examples here that I have done in my career to create champions. I want to get your perspective. Yeah. This fits in with the sell with type of mentality here. So first off, after about the third conversation that I have with the prospect in it's our fourth meeting, I'll say, hey, listen, Nate, you've now dedicated about three to four hours worth of time towards discussing this, discussing your goals, looking at our product, all this sort of stuff. And for sure, we got a little bit more to go. But I'm curious, if I take off my insert my company hat and you take off your company hat real quick, why the hell do you care? Why are you actually here? Yes, we're trying to improve the bottom line. Yes, we're trying to drive this executive type of goal right here. But I'm curious, what's actually in it for you specifically? And first off, I love asking that question. Because not only from my perspective, then I'll get your feedback on it. Do I think it's a really important question that gets to a little bit more of the why for the prospect? So it's a way that says, I just actually want to know you. I want to actually get behind and develop a relationship with you versus me being the seller, you being the prospect and like that unique type of relationship. That's my first example there. So I'll just pause there and say, like, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see anything? Do you tweak anything? Is there anything that you do like that? Obviously, driving revenue with better close rates is a good thing. But beyond the obvious, what does a project like this actually mean for you? And we'll talk about that. So I love that you go there, particularly because when you start doing more complex deals with longer cycles, the quote unquote value of the product is totally locked up for six, seven plus months, the length of the sales cycle. Like they can't actually use the product in their day job. So what's keeping them tied to running this process with you and spending all this time? There's some type of motivation there. And over a long period of time, what is the genuine way to sustain that urgency? And this is where so often sellers will just default to a very me-centric way of, hey, our quarter's ending. To help me get this deal closed, we can offer you X percent off. That's the default urgency. What you found an intrinsic sense of urgency which is way more authentic and it is a more genuine way to sell. So that's why I love your first approach. The authenticity, that's the hard one that many sellers don't think goes back to like that aren't typically taught. And even that's like what I believe that even through our, through Alluvians and through our communities and events, it's like, yes, the sales tactic and strategy and talk track and cold call script important for sure. But if there's not the complement to the complementative nature to it of the inner game of you coming from a space that says, Hey, I'm a good person. I actually want what's best 
for you. And also me feeling a certain sense of purpose and genuineness and impact in what I do. That's the part that I think up to this point, many people have said, well, they either got it or they don't got it. That said, that sales rep is just, he's got the thing or he doesn't have the thing. She's got the thing. She doesn't have it. But I actually think authenticity, right? I think that can actually be taught or at least learned and embodied within us as sales professionals. I was excited to talk about this, like sales in the context of what Alluviance is doing is because that is so fundamental. Like it is the baseline to making any phrase or tactic or question that you learn actually work. So you could take the phrases verbatim that we just shared and have zero success with it because you're asking it from a place of this episode is sponsored by Alluviance. Alluviance is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the art and the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. We got a phenomenal community of over 30 professionals who are really getting together, not just on what we're here to work on, but to really be with each other and build great friends, relationships, and who knows, maybe find new wonderful job opportunities. So we got our next Arise Immersion coming February 23rd through 25th this upcoming year. And last time we had over 50 people come to this one. It's going to be bigger, better, stronger, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you are interested, make sure you check out alluvians.co. That's A-L-L-U-V-I-A-N-C-E.co to learn more information. Can't wait to see you there. You are frenetic, you're hurried, you're rushed, you're anxious. People can sense that energy coming off of you in the presence that you've created around the question is signaling to somebody like, why do you actually care about this? I'm not sensing that you actually want to hear my answer. So why even ask the question in the first place? I'll give you a throwaway line. It's the foundation. It makes everything else work when you can show up and create a certain presence around the interactions with the buyer and the questions that you're asking. I know. So one time, I, you know, Mark Costglow, he was my boss for just about four or five, maybe six years through Outreach and then through Catalyst. And I still remember one time I had a deal with a customer or with a prospect and went up to Mark. Here's the situation, X, Y, and Z. He's like, and you got all pumped up. And if you know Mark Costco, when he gets pumped up, he's like, you feel his energy and you're like, you can't help but feel that energy right back. He's like, here's what you do. You go in, you say X, Y, Z. And I'm like, wow, like I'm going to do exactly that. And I want to sound like Mark Costco. And I went in there and I said it, I nailed it exactly like Mark said it. And I got virtually punched in the face <laughs> because at the end of the day, the talk track was great for Mark, who happened to be our CRO. The talk track was not great for Alex, who happened to be the account executive or the sales manager. And just goes back to like, hey, yes, these trainings that we're, we're bringing to reps, they're important. It's a good foundational piece. But if you're not then putting it through the lens for you to understand it and make it and integrate it into your style, into your language, it's going to come off and it's going to be out of rapport. Greatest, deepest things that I admire about Mark is his ability to transfer energy to you. I don't possess that. If I tried to operate at Mark's pace and level of just investing and giving off energy to others, I would have to sleep for 10 to 12 hours a night. And I tend to show up far more even. And almost some people could maybe even find it boring is like, my energy just doesn't spike as much as Mark's. 
But he also thinks about things in a way where I can say, hey, I can take that principle. Mark's breaking down this line of questioning in this way to get to this end with the customer. Okay, let me get to the same place. I can just do it in a slightly nuanced way that feels a little more innate. Here's my second technique that I always like to do. And again, give me your perspective on this. So at the very end of the conversation that I have, I'll give an actual real example. We were working on an opportunity with NASCAR when I was at Outreach. And we were at Outreach, we were against Sales Loft, just like every single deal. And we were internally from a few of the people who liked us that Sales Loft was doing a really, really good job. We chose to do is we went to pick off, there was about 12 different sales managers and we went to every single one of the sales managers and we had the same type of conversation. I mean, I went one-on-one. I had the same conversation with them. And at the very end, what is important to you kind of giving like how I think we solve best for them that. So like, hey, pricing aside, I'm curious, which vendor would you think it would be best suited for you to be a partner? If they would say outreach, which a majority of the time they did, I'd always say this. I'd be like, hey, I hear you and I love that. Here's the key thing. I'm going to like kind of light a fire under you a little bit. You guys are about to have some internal meetings to discuss this. Your voice needs to be heard. Like if you don't allow your voice to be heard, there's an opportunity for you guys to go the wrong direction, which now based on this conversation, we both know that. So I'm curious, do you feel called to be able to speak up when it's time to speak up? Hopefully they would say, yes. What do you need for me to help you to be able to do that? I kind of support them with what that talk track is. And sometimes I'd actually like say, cool, if someone says, why do you want outreach? Are you going to say? Right? And they'd give me the answer, be like, yes. And then I'd actually coach them on how to do that. I'm curious on your thoughts on like the combination of asking the question, getting the yes, instilling a fire under them to actually go and speak up, as well as actually coaching them on how to actually do that. And here's how I would dial it up even more. Once you have that conversation and you hear what they're thinking about, what's important, how they would frame it, their language. They're playing this back to you right in the conversation. Document that, turn the conversation into content. And what you're doing is you're giving them something practical to reference and to socialize. Imagine one of them sending out to all 12 sales managers before the meeting starts. Hey, here's a quick one page exec summary on why I think outreach is the right way to go. Take a read. We can all talk about it during the meeting. A couple things. One, you know that the message is going to be delivered in exactly the right way before everybody gets into the room. You're preempting other pieces of the conversation and you're making sure that what they intend to get across actually comes across. Now, the other piece that is really important here is once you put that draft down, this is where you can start to kick in something that's called the Ikea effect. People start to value what they have a hand in building. We take a stake in the things that we create. Have you ever built any Ikea furniture before? Okay. And if I were to hazard a guess, I was like, hey, go sell that piece of furniture on Craigslist or on eBay. You're probably going to list it for an irrational amount of money, like close to what you spent on it because you spent so much time like building this thing, right? And it's the same thing where I would, at the end of the live conversation with my champion, I would say, amazing. Okay. If I put this into a draft write-up for you to share with the team, help center the conversation, would you be open to giving me a comment or two? And what I'll do is I'll leave little placeholders in there. Maybe we need some actual data on deals lost to competitor A. 
over the last 90 days. How many deals were there? Go track it down, fill in the blank. Great. And so we're working together to build up the message because if I do the content on my own or we just leave it in a conversation, there's not that same level of ownership built up in them. And that's how I can make sure, okay, you actually are going to vocalize this to your point, getting them to verbalize it. Great. Now I can look for evidence of, are you working on this message with me or not? Now I know for sure you're going to go in there. Very last thing. I'll tie this back to an example back at outreach. So Mark was telling me one time about this. I forget if it was TMOD or TMOD, but anyway, it was this like slogan. You remember this 10 million or die. Okay, so for, for the listeners, what was the backstory around this, like this phrase, 10 million or die at outreach? I joined right after TMOD, but what I do know about it was the rallying cry for getting to being a 10 million ARR company for that particular year. And they made shirts, hashtag TMOD. It was really of like, hey, this is the opportunity for if we get to 10 million this year, we are one of the premier fastest growing SaaS companies com- comparable to a Slack or comparable to Snowflake. The last principle here is it's not what your champion says. It's what everybody around them hears. And the question is, how do you make sure that your champion is heard? Will you anchor to a specific phrase, code name that leadership is already sold on in a shorthand that will immediately call to mind a big initiative or priority inside of the company that, again, nobody needs to do any selling on. Like Manny, the team, everybody knew TMOD was critically important. So what would you do at the top of that write-up, that exec summary that you're building with your champion? What's in the headline? TMOD. Exactly. What's standing in the way? Can you frame the problem in a really sharp way that then aligns with what outreach does uniquely or differently from sales loft? So people say, ah, the blocker in front of TMOD, if I was selling to outreach, Like I would try to frame the problem standing in the way of TMOD in a way that is going to align with what I can do and deliver with my product uniquely or better than everybody else. And now I come together with my champion so that, okay, now I'm confident that, for example, the conversation isn't just going to stay with the group of managers. This is going to go up to the VP, the CRO, the CEO to say, take a look at this. We got a plan here, right? And so you're helping the champion make sure that they are punching through the noise inside of their own company to really be heard. I had an old boss, his name was David Rubenstein, former VP of sales at Salesforce, now is VP of sales at Meta, many different great places. And one of the things that he always implemented right when he got into outreach, he said, for every big deal review that we would have, before we get into who we need to speak with, what our value prop is, all sorts of stuff. It was crazy how often when a rep would say what the problem was, oddly similar to what our value prop was. Like, oh, their problem is they need to improve their processes and have better outbound prospecting. And it's like, that's our value prop. What's the actual problem we're trying to solve for? And it was a very clear pressure tester of whether or not you actually had a legitimate deal. Because if you couldn't answer the question, Sure, it might sound really good to the BTL person, the manager, or you know whoever it might be. Especially now in today's selling environment, that thing is going to have to pass through 18 different layers. And then the CFO is going to have to give approval. And if the value prop is, this is going to help us increase our efficiency and productivity, that's going down the drain right there. It is. And there are two pieces in there that I think are really important. The first is making this shift from selling to a problem to selling to a priority there are so many problems in the company, most of those problems, they will just label a distraction 
not a genuine problem because it is not blocking something that they care about, a narrow set of priorities that they are already focused on. And it is incredibly challenging to change somebody's priority. Far easier to align with that priority. The second piece is problem framing is an art and it is actually very hard to do. If you were to try to sit down and write, pick five deals inside of your pipeline and write out a problem statement about what is going wrong inside of each company, one, a lot of times they look exactly the same as each other. A lot of times there are no numbers, no ways to quantify it. There's not actually a root cause behind the problem. It's just, hey, this is an inconvenience. I'll give you like the most famous example that I would take my teams through of this was called the slow elevator problem. So let's say you own an apartment building, okay? And your tenants are coming up to you and being like, the elevator is just so slow. I can't take it. I'm going to cut my lease. The elevator is so slow. Okay, what just happened is a problem was framed for you. So what's the solution that immediately comes to your mind is, okay, we need a faster elevator. How do we do that? We got to go buy a whole new like hydraulic lift system. Big project, super expensive. Now, if I came to you and said, Alex, I don't think that's actually the problem. Like, I think people are just bored. Like, they don't like to wait. How could we keep them entertained to pass the time faster? What could we do? We just put up mirrors in the elevator because what does every person like to do? They like to look at themselves. This is an actual thing, by the way. If you go ride an older elevator, notice how often mirrors are in there, right? You've totally changed the solution by changing the framing of the problem. Kind of interesting. Damn, that was a good one right there. You're redefining what's the actual problem. It's not the slow elevator. It's that people are bored. And that requires also a potential you as the sales professional to challenge They say, hey, I think our productivity is really bad. I don't think it's your productivity that's bad. I don't think that you've inspired your reps to be able to want to work at your company. It might be a little bit of an extreme case. You're challenging something and looking at the problem completely differently. You have been a sales leader for a good amount of time. You're now a two-time founder here. I've seen on your post and, and in our conversation, you never actually had a boss that taught you. It's like, you were able to stumble upon how to sell simply by starting companies and having to sell them. And how's that? Because I've always looked at this, oh, the best way to learn how to sell is get a sales mentor, read a sales book, go and be an account executive or an SDR somewhere and you can learn that way. But what's it like learning how to sell as a co-founder as compared to an actual sales professional? Before I started doing sales meetings, I was doing customer research and customer discovery to figure out how to build a product. And I realized, for example, what we were just talking about, problem framing, the slow elevator problem. I was reading about that in terms of figuring out how do we build the right product by deeply understanding the customer's problem. And so I just took that discipline and applied it into sales. So built up the sales team for the first company I co-founded. When that company was acquired, I built up the enterprise business unit inside of that company, left and then did the same, built up a second enterprise sales team for a second company before leaving to found Fluent. So each time, I never had a sales boss or a formal training program. I had to figure out, okay, what other skill sets or fields of knowledge can I apply by analogy? So when I made that jump into enterprise, it was like, okay, what can I draw? So I left a consulting firm to go found this first company, DonorPath. And my job was to take thousands and thousands of legal documents produced during some type of litigation and turn it into the valuation for a specific technology patent. 
And so the job was essentially building a really big Excel model to spit out at the end of it a single number and say, hey, your motion control technology is worth X per unit. Therefore, this should be paid out in court. And so we would start with so much research and have to get it down to that. Now, I got really good at thinking about how to structure a problem with a series of frameworks based on how a certain business model runs in order to concisely make one recommendation. That essentially is enterprise selling. Tons and tons, months and months of account research to get to a structured value hypothesis of how you're going to impact the company, not just with your product, but specific drivers that an executive cares about, and then play back a concise recommendation inside of a short business case to say, hey, this is what it's all about. And that's how I started thinking about building out a written business case. So what I would say is, if you are genuinely interested in some body of work, field of knowledge, just go have fun learning it. And because sales is fundamentally just working with people and businesses, you will figure out how by analogy to weave that into your selling just career and life and you will be more well-rounded for it. I feel like I can follow you around and just like take notes, like speaking in your everyday life. I feel like you're that type of person. I want to ask one more other thing here because I really loved your view on this. A lot of times we're talking about mental health. And we even kind of alluded to that today on the call around being a great sales professional. It's really important not just to know the tactics, but to have just be mentally, emotionally, even spiritually healthy. And you've talked about the how do you battle peace versus performance. You've talked about previous places that you worked at, like there were some pretty serious mental health issues that did occur. I just love to get your take here as we close out this conversation here, your view on mental health, how you think about that as a co-founder, a new father, as a sales professional, all that. How do you incorporate those two personally? Simply because of the level of peace or just non-anxiety in, in my life because of one, hard-won lessons, lots of therapy, and just time realizing how to separate myself from my company. And I'll give you some examples of what I mean by this. After that first company, I co-founded it with a guy named Brian. Uh, we were bought by a company that was based in DC. We were based in Chicago. So we started this period of life where we were moving the business. I was thinking about moving the, my family. I was getting married. I was on the road. Southwest Airlines said I took 68 flights inside of six months, right? So traveling constantly, building up this enterprise team traveling to key accounts and so on. So life was a little nutty and I was constantly stressed out that this big opportunity that I had, I was going to fail miserably. At. And along the way, there was one particular time, my wife, Erin, she flew out to DC and she was going to hang out there for the weekend and we were going to go explore the city and so on. So she came out from Chicago on a Friday. I was tied up in a meeting. So I texted our office manager, Hey, can you set Erin up with a desk and she'll hang out? Now, Nobody knew who this, to them, just random lady was sitting in the office, right? And so they got to talking and they got to talking about me, again, not knowing that my wife was there. And they were talking about how they got stressed out that I was always physically walking fast around the office, like my level of anxiety was manifesting in a very tangible way that was spilling over into others. Had no idea, right? I thought I was just setting a good pace, like running hard and fast over the, after the big goals. So at dinner that night, Aaron was like, hey, by the way, this is what people are feeling. This is the type of presence that you're creating around the team. Did you know that? 
had no clue. What I thought was helpful for the team is actually creating a horrible environment. And they are just going to go project that onto the prospects and the buyers that we're working with. That is like not okay at all. So it was a wake-up call. Fast forward two years, the next wake-up call. And so that kind of kicked me off on a journey of, and there were other things around there, like I wasn't in therapy and I should have been. And there was a lot of things that I had to work through of detaching my identity, falling back on my faith, following Jesus to find that is who I'm becoming. That's who I want to be not this corporate whomever pick your label, right? So I had some work to do. That kicked off my journey. My co-founder, Brian, he unfortunately continued to have his own mental health battles that resulted in a overdose with some previous suicidal tendencies. Long story short, he died about two years ago. And I still think about all of the conversations that I wanted to have and we just didn't have to the level of depth. And maybe his story would have turned out differently. Maybe not. He had his own set of demons that he was fighting. But now when I look back and I think about when I see somebody that I care deeply about, am I willing to have the conversation with them from a place of love and grace and just wanting what's best for them? Why wait? Even if you're going through your own stuff, there's something beautiful about helping two people who are broken, become whole together. And sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. And that's why you need a good community. You need good professionals, therapists to help you alongside of it. But there is just a part of it of knowing that if you feel like you are just constantly on the way down and you can't catch a break, I guarantee what you will see on LinkedIn was founder with successful exit enterprise leader. And on the inside, everybody around him stressed out, nervous, and he feels like he is constantly screwing up and in shambles. And I hope people, and this is part of what you talk about a lot that I deeply appreciate, I hope people don't see these things as a binary set of, I have my personal journey, my emotional, Mm -hmm. spiritual health. There's that side of me that I take care of outside of work. I put that on hold. I step into work and I go do the performance thing. Those two things are so tightly linked that it's not a binary choice between the other, especially if you're thinking about if you want to stay in sales for any period of time, you will face seasons of high stress, high anxiety. The mission that you have at Alluvians is very personal for me in that reason, my story, just my own, but also with Brian and deeply believing this idea of the path to performance in your career will start with your own personal wellness. That is the lesson right there of we have this ability as sales professionals, leaders, founders, you name it, to grind. The grind is good. Grind serves us in various types of ways. Yet it can also be a very clear double-edged sword that can wear us down. So I'm glad that you spoke to that. I have one final question here for you. But before I do that, I just want to say, Thank you for being on here. I want to acknowledge you just for your passion in this, for your level of wisdom and expertise within this field. Also being a thought leader and your content, you put out such valuable content. You speak in such a powerful way that so many sellers and leaders and sales people in general are going to use not just to close more deals, but to also to live a better life. Thank you on behalf of everybody and myself very much included. Here's my final question for you, my friend. So this show is obviously called The Rising Leader Podcast. What do you view as the rising 
leader. They see the world differently from the commonly accepted or practiced wisdom, and they are going into following and creating their own path upward, whatever that looks like, by doing things in a way that is different and they fundamentally believe is the case. And that's how this whole thing got started for me, is I don't believe sales reps close deals like at all. There's a different way of operating. We can live that out and we can create a different presence in our interactions with our buyers. And so there is something, and it's not about title, it's not about earnings. Have you found your path because you see something differently? You believe this needs to be a part of the world. And so you are actively working to bring it to others. I hope. I hope that. Well, Nate, my friend, I appreciate this. Before we hop, I'm curious if people want to follow you, talk to you, check out your content. Yeah, I, I write on LinkedIn most every day. So Nate Nasrallah on LinkedIn. And if you want to check out any more kind of long form write-ups on any of the practices that we talked about, the book Selling With or our blog, um, flu.int.io backslash blog, both great resources. Awesome. Well, Nate, thank you so much, my friend. And for all those listeners, as always, thank you so much. And if you know anybody who needs to hear the show, which I guarantee there's at least a gajillion people in this world who need to hear this episode, make sure you send this along to them. Thanks for listening to the Rising Leader Podcast. Make sure you hit that follow button so you get notified every time a new episode releases. If you know someone who wants to take their lives and their career to the next level, send them this episode so we can all rise together. For more information, check out alluvians.co. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep letting it flow. This episode is brought to you by Alluviance. Alluviance is helping sales professionals, sales leaders, and founders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. And in the past 12 months, we've thrown four retreats and impacted over 100 tech sales leaders, founders on not just getting better at the craft, but really working on the inner game, gaining clarity on their vision, and also overcoming what's holding them back. The best part is you'll be doing it in an incredible community of high performers who are also trying to do the exact same thing. Our next immersion is going to be this May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas. And make sure you check out alluvians.co to apply there. Can't wait to see you.